You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey everyone, welcome to Page to Stage. A conversation with theater makers. We're your hosts. That's Brian. And that's Mary. Join us as we focus the spotlight back on the theater maker to uncover their process. We speak with folks in the industry that often aren't heard from. Such as stage managers, producers, crew members, marketing professionals. And everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Allie B. Gorey, and I'm an actor, an advocate, and a disability inclusion consultant. And I love helping arts organizations, businesses, educators build a more inclusive world for people with disabilities. I I think this is the first time that I'm actually talking to you since we were interns together. Wow. Humble beginnings. Which is crazy. I know. Which was probably about five (laughs) years ago now. You guys were interns at Broadway Teaching Group together, right? Yeah, my, our first year. Yeah, it was that's, amazing. That's actually how Mary and I met a couple summers ago. Now, <laughs> always oh, wow. seems All to lead roads back. Lead to that. back. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, they definitely do. In several cases, I feel like, um, especially on the podcast, for sure. Yeah. Um, I also just want to say, when I was on your website, Ali, I yeah. love that you put optimist, actor, and advocate, <laughs> and a self-proclaimed. Thank you cockeyed optimist, which, you know, was a nice nod to South Pacific in my mind. Yes, of oh course it God, is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's always what I, if I ever do the one woman show in my dreams, um, that is what it will be called. But um, <laughs> oh I do. Oh my God, this I, has to happen now. This just needs to happen. Right? But yeah, I mean, I try to lead with optimism and I, I feel like I've always been sort of a glass half full, not sort of, always a glass half full kind of human. And um optimism is is really like one of my core core values and i i love it and of course cockeyed optimist you know being the south pacific song and um for those of you who this is our first time chatting i'm i have low vision i'm visually impaired so cockeyed optimist just seemed to fit (laughs) (laughs) well i also like it is 100% true like you are always like a little ball of sunshine like i've never known you to ever not be optimist, optimistic, I mean. And so I just thought it was so brilliant. And also like when you meet someone in the industry, you can tell very quickly if it's genuine or if it's not. And it is very genuine with you. And it also just makes everyone feel really good, you know, like working with someone on a project, whether that's a theatrical piece or um, a webinar or a web series or a podcast or a live stream, whatever, like you you don't want to work with people who aren't easy to work with and who aren't kind, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. I I really appreciate that. And I agree. I think you can, you know, smell out humanity a mile away. (laughs) And it's, it's, it's real. And I, I, I appreciate that you that you see that. And that's always what I'm trying to bring. So thank you. And, you know, without knowing you beforehand, it just seems like that's a common thread throughout your career and a lot of the, you know, work that you've taken on um, from your bio and all that kind of stuff. So I'm really curious to just kick it back a little bit to your time at Belmont. And so yeah, you are, absolutely. You, you have a BFA um, in musical theater from, from Belmont I do. University? I do indeed. So yeah. Was and that was that like your dream school? You know, it's so interesting. I had a really interesting and, and strange sort of turn of events that led me to Belmont. I actually grew up doing nonstop musical theater. I mean, probably from the time I was six until um, 
I mean, until I went to college, I had a great theater in my community and my family. It was also, uh, they, they were very supportive. And so I would go to regional theaters in Atlanta and, and perform and, and tour and, and work, um, with the local children's theater. So I like never went to school because, you know, TYA shows are always at 10 and noon every day. So I did so much theater growing up that by the time I was a senior in high school, I was thinking, wait a minute, what if there's something else? And so before I went to Belmont, I actually was a music therapy major at a different school for a semester because I thought that um, I had done all this musical theater and I'd also done a lot of advocacy work. And I had this idea that majoring in an artistic sort of degree or a, or a music degree or a theater degree what was selfish. I had this very, I don't know, I was a senior in high school. I didn't, I, you know, was a senior in high school. So <laughs> I went to school for music therapy for a semester but it was a sort of conservatory program where I could only sing classical music. And it was like, you were either in the music school or the theater school and the trains, you know, the, the train tracks do not intersect. And, um, after one semester studying music therapy, I realized I have to do musical theater. I miss this so much. I can always come back to music therapy. And that's a funny full circle thing that we might get to later, but I knew I had to pursue musical theater. So I ended up transferring to Belmont and, um, continuing my, my study of musical theater. Um, so I, I studied musical theater there. And then in the summer when I didn't, you know, do summer stock, like every other college kid, I, I spent one summer at cap 21 in New York as well. And I feel like that was an, an amazing, uh, addition to my training at Belmont. You know, as a transfer student transferring into a program, how was your trajectory affected by that? And like, okay. at what point, <laughs> cause I, I did, I did kind of the same thing, although I transferred into the acting program while I was already at my school, it just yeah. took me an extra year, um, to actually decide to get into it. First of all, thank you for having empathy for the transfer student because yeah. God yeah. bless all transfer students. I want to give them a huge hug because it is no joke being a transfer. Um, I feel like we'll always have that little complex. <laughs> yeah. And especially in programs like, you know, at, BFA programs are so rigorous and it's very, right. um, it's very uh, portioned out correctly. You know, you have to start There's at five the right boys time. And five girls. Yeah, yeah, I know. It it was very interesting. You know, I, I, my second time auditioning because my senior year of high school, I auditioned for so many different majors just because I wasn't sure how I wanted to contribute as an artist. So my first audition cycle, I guess when I was, you know, 17, 18, I auditioned for musical theater and music therapy and, and, um, all, all these different majors within the schools of music and schools of theater. And um, so I'd already gone to some of these schools, but you still have to go back, right? You have to re-audition and restart over. So uh, when I auditioned the second time, my parents were like, you only have three chances. We will let you audition at three schools. Like that's it. And, you know, there we go. So it, it came down um, to NYU and Belmont and Belmont um, was really where uh, my heart was because the program was so small. But it was being such a small program, it was like, oh my gosh, like it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. And luckily, uh, because of the small program, it does feel like a family. I mean, there was like maybe 40, 40 people in the program and um, you do a lot together. Like there are a lot of classes, like from two to five every day, you're with the whole program, Monday through Friday. You get to know everyone really, really fast. But in terms of finishing school, I um, took like double the course load <laughs> every semester. Cause I wanted to graduate when I was supposed to, like I wanted to graduate in the three years that I had left in college. So I was just always in class. Always, always, always. Did that, did that have any impact on like your involvement with shows or even auditions? I guess being in a conservatory program, auditions probably are out of, 
out of the question, but I'm curious if, if you had any shows or anything like that you were involved with at the school that kind of were tricky to navigate because you were yeah. loading up on courses. Yeah. I mean, I actually was involved in shows almost every semester I was I was there. And what I was saying was we had this musical theater scheduled time with the whole department from two to five every day. And that's when the shows rehearse once they are in rehearsal. So it's a really interesting way that that's built into the musical theater curriculum. Yeah, that's and if so you're interesting. Not, so you don't go back, you know, at night for rehearsals, no. you do it built into the day. It's built in. It is epic. Wow, and so what's so funny that you say that. It's a game changer. Yeah. I mean, every school, take note, y'all. Uh, mental health <laughs> is so important. <laughs> um, but it was great because we also, it wasn't necessarily, um, pushed on us. But if we wanted to be rebels, we could also do shows in the Nashville theater scene. So there's some great regional theaters in Nashville. And even though, again, loading up on courses, taking online courses, taking summer courses, my senior year of school, I did carry at a regional theater in the city and Oklahoma at the same time. It was very strange to go from like 8.0 Annie at, you know, 2 p.m. to like carry white at 6 p.m. But like you can make it work. So yeah, it was, it was built in and we had a lot of opportunity. And if you're not in the show, like when you're, when you're underclassmen, you, you use that time to work on, you know, the behind the scenes kind of stuff. Yeah. I guess this kind of came a little early on because I think music therapy, you know, it's about helping people and right. it's maybe a form of advocacy if you think about it that way. Um, but do you have a specific memory or event in your life that gave you the impetus to pursue advocacy work? And when yeah. was that moment, you know, was that in schooling or after you uh, already graduated? That's such a great question. That moment actually happened for me when I was in high school. I Or no, ju junior high school. I was 13. Um, and I went to a doctor in Birmingham, Alabama, where I'm from. And she told me that with specialized low vision technology, the state of Alabama had recently passed a law that allowed driving. It's called bioptic driving. I can send you a lot of pictures of me in these crazy glasses. Um, but with occupational therapy, hours and hours and hours of this and like training and et cetera, et cetera, people with low vision to a certain degree can drive. And I was so overcome because that was sort of the biggest barrier to my independence as someone with low vision. Um, but what I went on to learn was that this driving training and this technology often wasn't covered by insurance. It was not cheap. Um, it, even though some people might be able to do it, it doesn't mean that they could afford it or that they could have access. Or what if you're living in a rural part of the state and you don't even know about it? And once I learned that a lot of the technology that this low vision specialist was telling me about, and it, not just the bioptic driving, but I also used a lot of assistive technology in school. And just as a person living with low vision, I mean, I have exciting technology abounding, but I was very fortunate that that was never um, a barrier, that if I needed something to help me in school, it was available. Um, but when I learned that wasn't the case for all kids, I knew I had to do something about it. So as a teenager, I created this organization through the Low Vision Center at the eye hospital where I was treated called Songs for Sight. And we used concerts to raise funds for the Low Vision Center. Also, when I was a kid, I never knew any other kids with low vision. I grew up at, in early intervention, school for the blind. But then, you know, I was sent to public school. And I was the only kid I knew who couldn't see very well. So I wanted to not only raise funds for this technology, but have uh, spaces where kids with low vision could meet and have mentors and friends, uh, and then also dedicate some of that to research. So this whole Songs for Sight idea was 
really what fueled me as a teenager. And I mean, still fuels me today. <laughs> Songs for Sight still exists, uh, the organization and the concerts. We just celebrated 10 years. But that was early advocacy. And I didn't see it as that then. I just saw it as, well, there's a problem and I'm going to fix it. And we're going to fix it by these concerts that are going to raise the funds. And then art and low vision and science and advocacy can all sort of intertwine. Yeah, because really it's just at that age, it's almost just like, oh, I'm doing this thing that I'm really passionate about, which involves performing. Right. And then you're just you're right. just kind of like tacking on of like, this is just going to a really great cause and to, to help really incredible people. And so you're not even really thinking, you're not even really getting that step back until you're more of an adult, which I think I just right. think is really so cool that you were able to kind of be that forward thinking at that at that age. Yes. And you don't see it as that, right? Like I remember going to speak at like, you know, the Kiwanis Club or the Lions Club and you're going to, or the Girl Scouts and, you know, getting to go do these keynotes. But I was a teenager and I didn't know what a keynote was. I was like, oh, I just get to make a speech about Songs for Sight and helping kids who have low vision, just like me. Cool. Um, But now obviously I see that as early like advocacy training. And and I think that's so exciting to look back. So I guess this is kind of a good, good time to ask what advocacy in the arts means to you. Yeah. Oh, wow. Advocacy in the arts means using your voice to make change through the arts. So I think there's a definite difference in in allyship in the arts and advocacy through the arts. And we can be uh, allies to artists without having to take a lot of action. But when you're an advocate um, and you're using the arts as a tool for advocacy, um, you have to be unafraid to use your voice to stand up for something that you believe in. And that you would, I, my, my mentor always says you would die on the side of the mountain for it. (laughs) Like when you're an advocate, you, um, aren't going to back down. You're going to speak up for what you believe is right. And you're going to use the arts as the vessel for change. Would you say that being an advocate means, and this could be, this could, you know, you could say like, no, Mary, this does not mean this of, (laughs) you know, so if you were an advocate, does that mean that you would be responsible for, or you could be responsible for organizing such events like that, what you did um, with Songs for Sight, or is it just lending a hand in that and still being vocal? Or is there like a sliding scale of being an advocate, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. So one of my favorite things to talk about is the difference, and I have a blog on this, and I, I can talk to you about this till I'm blue in the face, so I'll try to be concise, but the difference between, you know, an ally, an advocate, and an activist, um, and I think, you know, um, when you are an advocate, there are many different ways you can show up. Like, there's not a one-size-fits-all type of advocacy, but I do think being an advocate means that you are willing to carry the load and that you are willing to, yes, speak up. Yes, organize. Yes, write. Put out your own content. Spread your spread a message that is so much bigger than you. I don't, I really don't think there's a one size all way to advocate. I think it definitely means showing up and getting your hands dirty. Like you can't be an advocate without the sweat and and the work and the physical. Like you have to know so intimately the people who you are serving, the people you seek to serve, the people you seek to elevate. Um, whereas, you know, allyship, you don't have to know everything. You don't, you, you can be an ally from behind a computer screen, from behind your social media, from, from a very passive place. I think what takes um, advocacy to that level is the amount uh, of active participation and active willingness to be a voice to someone who may feel voiceless. 
And when did you realize that there was a need for advocacy in the arts for people with disabilities? Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, more, more specifically in, in theater, because, you know, yeah. I'm sure, you, you know, through your schooling, you even probably saw some things that saw that there was that need. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've grown up having to be my own advocate. I learned that lesson really early as someone with low vision in the arts. And I was always like, okay, well, I'm my own advocate. Like, here we go. And I, I know what I have to do to speak up and get my own needs met as a disabled person in the arts. But once I got to New York, you know, in school and in high school, you know, as a person with a disability, you have sort of a plan so that all your disability needs are met. After my first, I'd say, year in New York, I became aware of gaps in in industry knowledge and the way that the industry sees, takes care of, and portrays disability. So I saw gaps not only from the artist side, from the audience side, from the writing side. And I have a dear friend who also was seeing those gaps. And we would go see shows together that maybe portrayed disability or told disability narratives or or we would see no one with a disability on stage. And we just began having these conversations and realized that there was such a bigger problem. Um, and there is a community um, of, of a, a disability community of artists in New York, but a lot of times they're in this bubble where they all know each other and we all know each other, right? It's, it's not a big community, especially folks pursuing it on the professional level. But how do we reach out even more? There, I just saw so many like little bubbles and pockets of people, but no real lasting... Um, reach. Like you might see representation once a season or once every five years, but that's not enough. And once I began noticing just the lack of inclusion and, you know, I would show up to auditions and ask about accommodations and they would say, well, you can go. I'd say, oh, can, can you please make this script large print um, for these callbacks? And they were like, well, can't you, can't you go down the street and do that yourself? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is not school anymore. Like you don't, well, you should get your accommodations, but well, that was Yikes. one of the things I was going to ask you, if, if you didn't mind sharing a bit of your experience as a performer, because you've performed in uh, regional productions, sh shows in New York, but also you've been on tour for several things. And so yeah. I was going to ask you what your experience was. And I know that every production has, I believe it's called an equity deputy. Mm -hmm, is, that, mm -hmm. is that correct? As a performer? You're right. Yeah. And so like what what is the – is there – is that something that that deputy would be responsible for to to kind of help be an advocate for for you and for you know other other artists of course and does equity really do they take a lot of responsibility for bridging that sort those gaps yeah you know those are oh, those are such good questions um such good questions and i have recently um gotten involved with equity on the EEO committee. So hopefully we will, we will be working to remedy some of the issues. But what's so interesting is when you are a performer with a disability and you are cast in a production, you, first of all, performers with disabilities, artists with disabilities have to work, I'd say six times as hard just to get in the door. So then once you are in the door and once you're cast, you want to do everything you can sometimes, and I hate saying this, but to, to fly under the radar and not have anything come up because the last thing you want is the choreographer or the director or the stage manager to say, oh, well, they just couldn't do it because they have a disability. So you're kind of walking this fine line, especially in these like regional off-Broadway tour situations where at least I walk this line for a very long time of I'm, I got in the room, I'm here, I don't want to be a burden. But that is an old hardened belief that a lot of disabled people 
carry around is I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be a burden um, because the world is designed for non-disabled people, quite frankly. So now as a you know visually impaired person and I'm cast in a show, I immediately write the stage manager before the first day of rehearsal. I talk, you know, before we go into tech or when we go into the theater, I have to do my own walkthrough for, for set and lights and things like that. And I have to carve out the time, but I, it was not easy for me to figure out what accommodations I needed because frankly, to have accommodations at all, um, from my first few years in New York, they were seen as such like extra burdensome things that I was like, Oh, well maybe I should just be quiet and figure it out. But no, now I, now I definitely use my voice and, and get my needs met and whatever that means. Now, just to clarify, would your disability be considered a silent disability? Or what's so the proper a, term for invisible. that? Because, yeah. Oh, oh invisible, great question. Sorry, sorry invisible yeah, disability. Yeah. Now, that's a great question. That's probably such a difficult and vulnerable conversation to have with you know the people behind the table or your stage manager when you first get cast. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, how do you um, handle that part of it? What's interesting about my disability, I have low vision and... I have this condition where my eyes move side to side. They sort of shake and it's called nystagmus. Now, some days you might look at me in the eyes and think that I'm looking right back at you and you might not notice my eyes shaking at all. And then I could wake up tomorrow and you're going to think I'm ridden with anxiety because my eyes are shaking so much and I can't control it. It's totally involuntary. I don't know. My left eye, I don't have much sight in my left eye at all. And sometimes it'll just drift over stage left. And I'm like, oh, there it goes again. But like, I don't, I don't know that it's doing that. So it really depends on some auditions. It might be clear that I do have a disability when I walk in the room. And then some days it might not, or some days that might be like, wow, she is so invested, but where is she looking? Um, because you know, when we audition, we're in these tiny rooms most of the time. So, or, you know, small, even if you're in a big studio, which I think is so silly when they'll run out like the biggest room at Pearl and then they use like a quarter of it. Um, it happens all the time, but it really depends on the day. And like, for example, if I'm in a dance call, cause I'm a tap dancer, um, I say, you know, I tell the choreographer, I'm going to stand in the front row. I am not going to switch lines and I am legally blind and this is my story. And sometimes they're like, WTF. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's going to be great. See you on the other side. Um, but it really depends. So I have started listing my disability on my resume under my special skills, uh, because I don't want it to be under like my name and my email address. Cause I don't think it defines, it isn't like all of me, you know, but I do think it is something that people behind the table need to know. And sometimes I'll work it into my slate. If it feels necessary. And it really depends on the project, who's behind the table, who's casting. Um, sometimes I'll ask if it's a really generous monitor. I can't see necessarily. I always joke that my auditions, I'm like, this was great because I can't see who's behind the table. Like I can't see that far. <laughs> so I'll ask the monitor to tell me where the layout of the room is because every time I walk into an audition room, I'm kind of guessing. I'm like, I hope I go far enough to the piano. <laughs> like, I hope I am center between like the back wall and the table. So <laughs> I've, I've started really having to, to ask, but for the invisible disability part, having my disability on my resume and not being afraid to talk about it in the room or work it in is something I've been doing a lot more lately, just because it makes me feel a seen and be not like I have to hide, which I guess is the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to jump into Able, a series, if I was okay with you, Brian. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you – I remember – I don't remember where I was, but I remember when I first saw you post about this, 
I was so blown away because this was like a no-brainer to me of like, of course, this is something that needs to be out there. But then on the other hand, it's like, of course, you would be the one to help tell this, these stories. And so I'm curious as to how this came about. Um, and if you wanted to give a little bit of backstory about to what Able a series is. Yeah. So Able is a documentary series, a mini series, if you will, eight episodes. Each episode is about 15 minutes in length. And they these episodes tell the stories of artists with disabilities in film, TV, theater, comedy, et cetera. Earlier in this interview, when I was talking about my friend who I would go see all the theater with, and we'd talk about representation and had these deep dive chats. Um, this is a friend that I actually met in school. She was a theater major. I was musical theater in, at our school. Our, our paths crossed a little bit, but we didn't become closer friends until New York. And her name's Callan. And one summer we were both off at different regional projects and she sent me an email being like, Hey, I have this idea, but I can't do it without your help. And I said, let's go, let's do it. Um, and so we truly within three months fundraise like crazy, like thank God for the nonprofit work and, and advocacy work I did as a kid, because I was like, well, my teenage years taught me how to fundraise campaigns, letter writing, Indiegogo, everything, you know, we, we put it all up, but then also Things because that of most high school students probably would not have had that experience. <laughs> Yeah. Like it was, you know, everything is for a reason. I swear, you know, I'm sure a lot of us are sitting here in the middle of this pandemic time being like, what is this all for? It will come back. We will, we will have gained something in this time. I I guarantee you this time is not wasted, but that's sort of how Abel came about is I was approached and I said, heck yes, you know, did the fundraising. And because of some of my involvement with, um, different shows and, and different folks in the disability community, I had already sort of had a, a baby network of, disability advocates, um, disabled artists, and just folks that I thought were my badass disability role models in mind. Um, and my friend Callan, who is our co-producer and co-host, has more film and TV experience. So I was like, okay, you handle all those logistics. I'll handle the fundraising and getting the talent and let's do it. So that's how it all came about. And these episodes seek to educate and enlighten and empower both disabled and non-disabled folks to see things differently, you know, to, to really understand that disability is 20 to 25% of our population. And we cannot stand for the arts being a place where they're not represented. Like it, it just is preposterous, you know? So we really wanted to make sure that we, told these stories that that we hope other people will begin to see that disability inclusion should not be the last seat at the table, but the first. I think that a lot more people are, you know, becoming more aware of these things, or at least I hope that's the case, you know, with the yeah. craze behind Deaf West Spring Awakening and, you know, Ali Stroker in Oklahoma and her winning the Tony. And, and I think that you know, she's been really instrumental, instrumental piece of the puzzle with her being an advocate. And like, also just like talking about the space backstage at theaters and stuff like that, like that is just stuff that, you know, I'm privileged enough not to think about. Right. What's the process behind getting those kind of messages across for people that have no clue. And for people that really, you know, they just don't think that there are these barriers for people. Right. Well, first you have to let them know that the barriers exist, right? Because until you know, you aren't going to act. And I always say that once you know, once you have the education, once you've seen or 
Oh my gosh, now I'm thinking of this line from Carrie, the musical, which I'm like, oh no, don't quote it. Don't quote Carrie, don't it. quote Carrie. Do but you know, when, when, when Sue Snell's like, once you see, you can't unsee. But I always say, because you know, that's not the most inclusive. Once you know, you can't unknow. Yes. Like once you, mm-hmm. once you know something, you can't. And so. And, and I'm interested also in like, you know, these theater owners or producers, the people in charge of the institution, how are they being made aware of these things and how can they listen and put action behind um behind their their dollar or you know absolutely their, their spaces and, and also like how are they facilitating facilitating further conversations with their whether it's with their staff their donors their investors like that would be my next question is like once you have the information like what what are where does their responsibility lie yeah well, their responsibility lies in taking action once they have the information. I think what well, is so tricky. Oh yeah, no, go, go for it. No, I was just going to say, like, I really, I was wondering maybe you could bring in your inclusion consulting. That's exactly where experience. I was going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. How does it, can you walk us through the process of when you have of what clients that looks in like? the, th- yeah, in the theater world specifically. In the theater world specifically, it really depends on what the client wants. So maybe they want, they're like, look, I know what I know and I don't know what I don't know. And the truth is I don't know a lot about disability inclusion from the artist side. What's interesting though, is a lot of theaters know about it from the patron side. Um, and there is a big knowledge gap when it comes to the arts and, and the education side of, of these branches of these regional theaters. Um, so it really depends on what the theater wants. So sometimes I've worked with theaters on creating a, I call it a 360 degree access plan that covers audience engagement, artist engagement, education, and staff training. So you can go that route and do like a complete like access audit and inclusion consult that gives you an accessibility plan and an inclusion plan really for your whole organization. I mean, one the, my favorite opportunity I've had was for a theater that is getting a new space. And I got to go through the plans, like the architectural plans and talk about inclusion, like literally from the ground up. <laughs> so in access, so we can go in that direction. But sometimes I might just get a call from a casting director that's like, hey, will you help me write this breakdown? And then a lot of times that will lead to further discussion and further work because I'm so glad that you know how to write this breakdown, but do you know what happens when you find your artists? Like, do you know how to make sure that they're taken care of? No. Oh, let's work together even more. So there are certain things too, that'll be project specific or, you know, I might get asked, I'm looking for a deaf artist uh, for this project, or I'm looking for um, an artist in a wheelchair to, to work in my company or whatever. And so it really depends. And I think that's why I love the work is it's project specific, it's person specific, and it's theater specific. Um, But the truth is, not all theaters are doing the work yet. And and we all know that, right? Like, it's not shocking. Um, And so I'm just, you know, when I started doing the work, I started with theaters where I've worked before, um, because I knew that I could give them a nudge, and it would be much more well, (laughs) it would be much more, you know, received than approaching somewhere and saying this website on, or this language on your website is disempowering to disabled people. You know, I can't just go and like be the disability troll. So I have to start where I have the connections. And then from there you, um, might book a webinar and then, then another theater finds you, you know, cause you're doing a webinar with, you know, the national Alliance musical theater or, you know, equity or whoever. Um, so 
that's sort of how it, it works. And that's how it's sort of branched out. But it, again, it depends on what they want. It might just be like, how do I make my audition accessible? Um, or it might be, you know, how do we incorporate disability inclusive programming into our theater's education branch? Um, and we just work with where they're at. And you can't, you know, it's, it's so much better to start with a small, bite-sized, measurable, tangible goal than to do some of these like 360 degree inclusion audits, which I love. Don't get me wrong. But when you're starting this work and if you're realizing that, okay, once I know, I can't unknow, where can I affect change right now? Like what part of my theater, what, what can I do that I can measure, that I can track and that I can progress forward? Like what area can I progress in? What are typically the types of clients that you have that are not theater specific? Yeah. So I've gotten to work um, with professors, with educators. That's a big um, branch. Um, and then also different uh, businesses in the corporate world. I mean, I've gotten to work um, at and speak at places like PwC, um, at a few construction companies. <laughs> Just wow. very, I know, it's, it's so interesting. Or nonprofits. I mean, it totally... Um, Depends. Universities done a bunch of. I love one of my biggest joys is keynote speaking, um, and I find that that will sometimes unlock the door to further. And I wouldn't even call these consulting gigs, but just getting to speak with faculty, getting to speak with students, getting to speak to groups on campus about how to be more inclusive, um, and then getting them to go out on their own and really start the work right. on their own too. Yeah. Yes, what because are, you can't do it for them. Yeah. What are some of the things that you've learned from those non-theatrical clients that you might take back to your work in the theater? Is there anything, you know, anything different? Yeah. Yes. Because, you know, you know in, <laughs> in, in the theater community, it's very, ironically, widely known to be very accepting and very, yep. you know, and and. And who knows if that's really just a front um, because yeah. there is so, so much work to still be done. Yeah. I mean, there's performative advocacy and allyship everywhere. Like, and I think we're, we're seeing that in today's climate um, big time with, you know, racial justice and injustice. Um, uh, but what's so interesting is since I've uh, been back right now, I'm, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm away from New York uh, during this COVID time and I'm doing more corporate diversity inclusion work. And it's funny because I'm like, man, I thought it was hard in the arts. Like, what a picnic. What a picnic. Um, because in, in corporate spaces, there's a lot more red tape and there's a lot more um, – you can't just say what you want from behind your your screen or you can't – I mean, you can't just go on a, a big rant. You know, it's so calculated and um, you have to be strategic and you have to – meet folks where they are. And my biggest, I'm very big into like personality tests and strengths finder tests. And my biggest strength on the strengths finder, if you've ever done it is futuristic. And so I have to really rein that in and be like, okay, what's again, the most tangible change we can make right now. Um, and what, you know, can have the data behind it and what is super, super data driven because in the arts, you know, we can get very lost in our big ideas and, you know, our vision of the future and the world we want to build and create, but in some of these corporate spaces, it is very like, okay, well, what needs to happen now is we need to make sure that your website is accessible, period. You know, it might be that simple. I definitely find that the arts is a more easy and welcoming space to nudge some of the change forward a little faster um, because you're most of the time in rooms with a lot of yes people. You know, we all like want to be inclusion warriors in the arts. I think a lot of us come to the arts because that's where we feel included. So we want to make sure others feel included. Um, 
but the corporate space is, while they still want to be inclusive, don't get me wrong, there's just so much more um, red tape and more steps and more um, strategic um, uh, strategic planning and thinking and, and smaller incremental change rather than like sweeping change. That's so interesting. I was going to ask you about like the marketing that you have to do, like the outreach almost that, that you're doing to get these clients, if, if you even call them clients. But yeah. is there anything that, that you're doing, especially for the the non-theater i mean you could speak to both of course but i'm curious as to like for the non-theater like where are your like where is your networks and like how are they how are they working how are they serving you in that way yeah so absolutely um well first of all i think some of the best uh way to find new clients and of course i think we all know this is through word of mouth right or you you go speak or you you work with one company who says oh my gosh when they when their friend or their sister or parent or whatever company need someone, they refer you. So referrals have been a great, great start for me. And then same with, I mean, speaking is very similar keynote work. I mean, you, you develop sort of a speaker reel and a, and a a pitch deck and things. So it's a lot, you know, in in the beginning of you just going, going, going and saying yes to every opportunity and speaking at the tiniest, tiniest, you know, 10 person round table and then moving forward. But also one of my favorite uh, ways to get clients, I, I would love you all to read this book. <laughs> it's called Reach Out by Molly Beck. And it talks about the art of reaching out. And so this this girl, Molly Beck, did this whole program where she did a reach out every day for like 100 days, right, to different people. And like some of these were blind reach outs. Some were on the fringes of her network. Um, and so you learn how to use this like reach out practice of okay, who are all the people that are on the fringes of my network? Like who are my weaker ties in my network? Who are my stronger ties and how can I lean on them? And a lot of things have come from cold reach outs. I mean, I've spoken at universities that I've had zero tie to, or I'll send a link to Able a lot of times. And so folks will see Able and then that might be a spark or I've gotten a lot of reach outs from Able where folks will email me and say, hey, I, I one or a few universities this year actually have said, hey, we saw this series. Could we use this in our curriculum? And would you like to come speak to our students? So it, it's a lot of cold reaching out. And I love that. I'm such an extrovert that I could reach out for days, but it's a lot of that. And then just relying on your champions. I think I love so many of uh, my, my mentors and, and directors and you know choreographers and folks I've worked with in New York. And when you develop those relationships and really continue to develop them after the show closes, after your acting class ends, et cetera, et cetera, you continue to pour into each other. And so I think it's been a lot of that as well. Are you still performing? And if so, what is that balance like between, you know, able and your advocacy and performing? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been <laughs> performing as much as I can. Uh, and of course, everything's shut down right now. Wow. No summer job, you know, of course. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't, I have not stopped performing. That's for sure. Um, you know, right now it's a bunch of, you know, I have a bunch of friends who do the BMI Writers Workshop and it's singing their music and it's, and you know. And this is probably the perfect time to have that side hustle like you have. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's awesome. I, I, I want all my artist friends to, to find what they love and, and develop it because, you know, you can't always control when you're going to be performing. Um, but yes, I still have every intention to perform when all this is over and I'm trying to find all of the weird virtual ways. I mean, during this quarantine alone, I got to do a production of Midsummer via Zoom. <laughs> um, but it was with all blind and low vision artists from across like uh, wow. the U.S. and Canada. So it was really cool. And like we would have never had that opportunity um, in normal times. So it's finding the 
joy in the constraint, you know, like we are all in this virtual constraint, but we can still make amazing work and it still flex our creative muscles. I don't know exactly who this person was, but in the, in the able trailer, the first person who speaks says a quote, disability is not a technical skill. It's a lived experience. And I think so much of theater is that lived experience being brought to the stage. And, you know, oftentimes it's those actors embodying the characters um, showing the experiences of other people, you know, that they aren't familiar with those experiences and that part, that's part of the work, I guess, for a lot of actors. So how do you feel about non-disabled actors playing actors with disabilities on stage? Not good. (laughs) Not good. Um, No way. Yeah, no, no, no. Um, And I'll tell you why. So the same woman who uh, gave us that quote about disability is not a technical skill. It's a lived experience. Her name is Christine Bruno. And I think as a person with a disability and an advocate, it's so important to say thank you to all the people who have come before you that have helped you get in the door because like without them, you wouldn't even be allowed to knock at the door. Um, So she's one of those folks for me. And she taught me not only that, but also this term called cripping up. And that is what it's called when a non-disabled actor plays a disabled part. And she equates it. She's like, well, you wouldn't do blackface. Like that's no point. Like, no, like that is not acceptable. Um, so what's, why is this different? Like why it's, it's an identity. Um, and I think of it also, you know, in terms, I, I, I always try to put things in like my perspective and in my terms. And I think of sexuality and non yeah. like straight actors playing gay roles. And I wonder, you know, myself, I, I still don't know how I feel about that. Sometimes I right. wonder is, is, should it just go to the best person? Right. But, you know, I, I also often feel, especially with people that are with with disabilities, they may not be given the best chances. You may not be able to see as many or audition as many people. So how do you know who the best person is? You might not be seeing the best person. Yeah. You mean like from the casting side? Yeah. 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 Well, to be honest, and I think any you know professional actor with a disability would tell you this, while there are a growing number of artists with disabilities pursuing theater, there is a serious and devastating education gap for young disabled artists. Um, there's also a, a gap in and just a lack of people encouraging folks with disabilities to go for these kinds of careers in the arts, right? Because for example, there is a school for the blind where I'm from, and you're encouraged to graduate from that school. And this is why I, I went to public school, um, because once you go to the school, then it's like, great, well, you can go work in these like four jobs, and most of them are, you know, in a factory or whatever, which is, there's nothing wrong with that, but you're not encouraged to dream big. Dream yeah. big, and God forbid, pursue the arts. I mean, that's like the kiss of death in, in, in that school of thought. Um, so there's a serious education gap, and also, artists with disabilities coming up, a lot of people don't know how to educate them and frankly, turn them away. Um, I grew up in a regional theater where I was the only disabled artist for a while. And then we had another, another boy come in, thank goodness. But when I was there, it was like, suck it up, deal with it. I mean, our artistic director, when he moved to Birmingham from New York, he was like, okay, so figure out how to deal with it and advocate for yourself and come back to me when you know how to do that. Like he was so intense and like hard on me, but a lot of folks would just say like, I don't know how to deal with you. You can't take my class. Or, I mean, I, in New York city alone, I have had 
two film and TV instructors look at me and say, if you can't see the camera and if your eyes look like that, like I don't, I don't know how to teach you. And it happens to people with disabilities all the time. Or like you might come into a dance class and you have a physical disability and same thing. So there is a huge education gap, which is what prevents more artists with disabilities from even getting in the door to audition for disabled roles, much less non-disabled roles. I mean, who doesn't want to just be Millie and throwing out our Millie? I mean, come on. But yeah, there, there's such an education gap, which is why I think we often get to this place where maybe we only saw three wheelchair users for this part who is supposed to be a wheelchair user, but we only could find three and could find I, whatever. There's so many things I could talk about here, but it's tricky. And we have to look back and not think about like the week of the audition, like, oh, this is like the best we could do. Well, what's being done in education right now? Like what is being done from kindergarten on to ensure that we are telling people with disabilities that they can pursue a career in the arts? It almost feels like it's like a cycle of like the people who are not educated enough are that way because, because well, one, because they were not educated, but also two, because there's a lack of representation for artists with with, with disabilities. It's easy to blame it on that too. Oh, for sure. Of course, because I mean, until I began auditioning for disabled roles on, on you know film and TV, I never saw people with low vision on film and TV. Um, and if I did, they were sighted people that looked silly because they were sighted people pretending to not be able to see and doing things that blind and low vision people would never do. So <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, you have to see it to understand that it can be done. And I think that was what was so brilliant about you know when Ali Stroker won the Tony is is there's proof now. There's proof of like, look, this is happening. Like I can do this too. I think the, some of the greatest words for a disabled kid, you know, to be able to say is me too. Like I can, I can, I can do this as well. This is, this is for me. This is available to me. Um, but yeah, until you see it being done. And of course your parents are going to be like, are you kidding me? Like no one, no. Um, it is a cycle. It's, it's really tricky. And I hope that it, it, you know, as as we keep advocating and as we keep doing the work that this cycle, you know, opens up and becomes more of a linear opportunity for folks from training to being able to actually take the stage and screen. So you had mentioned your mentor earlier or a mentor earlier. And I, I love this subject personally, because I'm always so fascinated when we have these conversations and every theater maker that we that we talk to either on air or off you know, they, they have such a fascinating story and a mentor, whether they use that term or not, has such an impact on every single person's journey, their, their role, and then what they do um, as a result of that. And so I'm curious as to what kind of mentor you had either growing up, but also as an adult now doing all of these incredible things. And then a part two of my question is, have you looked at yourself as a mentor yet? I'm always, cause I know we're in this like awkward age when we're in our twenties and you know, you're, you're yeah. just not sure like how to navigate that, but it, it happens. And especially with the, the power that you have, you know, as um, an advocate, but also with able and just as a theater maker, you know, you do, you are a mentor, I'm sure to so many people, whether it's in your hometown or all over the country. And so I'm curious as to how you navigate that? And also, could you speak to any mentors that you've had? Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to answer the second part because I just, I find it so sweet and exciting. But the first part, um, I've had two mentors who, I've had so many mentors, to be honest. But when I think about advocacy and arts as advocacy, I've had two mentors that have really changed the game. 
One is, his name's Keith Cromwell, and he is the artistic director of Red Mountain Theater Company in Birmingham, Alabama, which is the fierce regional theater in my hometown. He was the one that I was telling you about. He came to Birmingham from New York. You know, he'd done all the shows, toured, whatever. He was coming up 15 or so years ago to be the artistic director. Um, There was a production of Annie in like, what, 2005 or something. And he was like, what's wrong with your eyes? Like, what's happening? Like, and I was like, oh my God, I'm a kid. Like, I don't know how to talk about this yet. And he was the first person that told me I had to figure it out and learn how to advocate for myself because if not, like I wouldn't be able to succeed (laughs) in the industry. And he was really tough on me. I mean, there was one weekend where a choreographer was coming in to teach their youth conservatory, this Fosse number. And we were auditioning for solos and I had the sheet music right up to my face. And it was like mine air from cabaret, which why 13 year olds were singing that, like, don't know. But anyway, I was trying to sing it and see the German and do all this stuff. And the choreographer like rips the music from my face and says like, why can't you like look and perform this when I, when you sing? And I was so shook. And, um, the artistic director was like, well, are you going to advocate for yourself right now? Like, how are you going to stand up? What are you going to do? And it was, he caught me in all of these moments where I had to really stand up for myself and it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't pretty, but without those, I don't think I'd be able to go to New York um, and, and do it and pursue this. And, and it sounds probably really harsh, but in this like sweet ooey gooey Southern culture that I was raised in, if I didn't have him, I would have been stepped all over. And I would have just thought that I could hide behind my disability when in reality, if I hide behind it, I am stripped of the opportunity to work as an artist. So he was my first mentor. And then my biggest mentor in the city who I didn't really find until three or so years into the city, her name's Jen Waldman. And she is the brains behind the Jen Waldman studio. She was a Broadway actor, but she's a director and a teacher and one of the most amazing teachers I have ever had in my entire life. And I have been, you know, taking acting class in New York for three or so years and had never had accommodations really made for me, even when I would ask for them. And I remember the first day I walked into class at her studio, first of all, I was late because I couldn't see the building and couldn't find it. So I was like so embarrassed. And of course I walked in and like, it was everyone in that room, like half the class was on Broadway. Like it was just an amazing professional, just, I mean, the, the caliber of talent and the folks that study with her are just, it's just unreal. But it's like, I walk in, I was so intimidated. And even so there were materials for class and she had them for me in large print the first day. Like she didn't know me, but I had written on my form for class that that's what I needed. And she actually made the accommodation. And I was, I, I could have cried because that had never happened to me in New York yet. I mean, even booking work, I had to enlarge my own scripts, enlarge my own everything. And she never brought up my eyes or the way my eyes looked. Like we were just able to focus on the work and the text. And I got to like do such deep, deep work as an artist. But then my relationship with Jen developed over time. And she was the one who was like, Allie B, you have to do more with your advocacy. Like you need to speak up. You need to consult. You need to do this. And you need to put your advocacy in action and she helped me connect those dots of, wait a minute, I was a little advocate when I was a kid. And then all of a sudden, all this time has passed and it's been great to do all this work as an artist. But when I was coming to her studio, I sort of felt empty as an actor. You know, I was like, I'm doing all this, but what's it all for? And she always asked the questions, who is your work for? And what is your work for? And those two questions 
brought me back into the space of, oh my gosh, if I'm not using arts as advocacy, then what's it for? Zero, zip, nothing. And so she's continued to mentor me. And she also does a lot of keynote speaking and, and speaks to businesses and teaches artists that their work is not just for people wanting art. You know, artists have value in the business space, in the keynote circuit, in leadership roles in other industries. So she's been really instrumental um, in me sort of not just seeing my art as service, but seeing um, art as advocacy. I mean, she's really who's helped me bridge that gap for the second time as an adult. And oh, wow. So sorry. I feel like I've talked your brain off about mentors because I my heart just like pours open for my mentors. I love them so much. Um, but then Mary, what you were saying about being a mentor, mentoring and, and being there for especially artists with disabilities is truly what lights me up and what keeps me going. And since ABLE, since um, some other opportunities performing uh, and, and, and just different opportunities, speaking, et cetera, et cetera, I've met kids and, and teenagers and folks in theater who have disabilities all over the country via, you know, it could be through an Instagram DM and then we do a FaceTime or it could be, you know, through an email or something, the smallest reach out. But it is so exciting when I get an email saying, I'm a 13 year old or I'm in high school and I have low vision. How did you audition for college? Like, what did you do? I want to do this, but I'm so scared. Um, and I love it. I love getting to talk people through it. And I love getting to tell folks that there is a place for them because there is, but you've got to work. <laughs> so I do. I love, I love getting to, to hopefully be that person that maybe tells someone that they, they've got this for the first time or that they, they can pursue this, that it is an avenue for them. Well, that's, that's kind of why I asked the question was because that's kind of what I was, you know, um, kind of collecting over this conversation and just knowing you for the last so many years is just the work that you're doing is helping, you know, show that representation matters and that there is representation. It's just, you have, you know, right now you have to look a little bit harder um, and we, and there's so much work to be done. But I think just by having the conversations with the industry and then also with the individual is just so important. And I'm so happy that 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 you're a huge part of that right now. So oh, thanks. And- <laughs> yeah, you have to muster up that courage somehow, you know. I can't believe this hour just flew by. But before we go, we usually we ask one last question, and that was what was the last great piece of theater that you saw? And I know it's gotten much more difficult to answer that question as we get further away from seeing theater. <laughs> I would have to say <laughs> the revival of company. It blew my mind. The acting was phenomenal. The gender switches that were taking, like it should be the way it was in the revival period forever. I agree. I saw it in the West End a year and a half ago and it I really wanted to see it again when it came here, but I was holding off until after they had opened. Oh, well, just everything about the script updates were so needed because I actually didn't like company before, uh, like as a, as a musical before this. So how can our listeners find you on social media, your website, uh, Able series? Yeah. First of all, go to Amazon Prime and watch Able, a series. Um, if you have Prime Video, it's, there for you. And if you don't, it's 
really like $3. So like make the splurge. Um, <laughs> and you can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at A-L-I-E-B-G, Allie B-G. And you can also follow Able a Series at Able a Series. And you can find me on my website at www.alliebegory.com. And there you'll find everything um, involving my consulting work and my work as an artist. So it's a one-stop shop. And (laughs) I hope that you'll reach out if you heard anything or you want to learn more or you're curious about inclusion efforts wherever you are when you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for coming on here. Uh, It really flew by this this hour. It really did. Full of optimism. You're the best hosts and facilitators. And I loved getting to chat with y'all. Awesome. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Page to Stage. To keep up with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Page to Stage Podcast. And if you're enjoying these conversations, we would really appreciate it if you could take a couple minutes to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this podcast. Until next time. That's Brian. That's Mary. We'll see you later. Bye. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.